And if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word and take out your Bibles, we'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17 as Pastor Bruce continues the series, Triumphant, Running the Race is Set Before Us. We're going to be looking at uh, the text today, verses 12 through 17, but to give you the overview of the chapter, we're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, in front of you you'll find a pew Bible. You can find it on page 698. So listen as I read Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 1 through 17. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily in the subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord." Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, for who one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Father, we come to you this morning, we thank you for your word, we thank you that We can be triumphant by relying on you and your strength, your grace, and your power in our lives. Help us to run the race that is set before us and to finish with endurance and and, uh, just to seek you um, throughout our entire life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are continuing on in our series in the book of Hebrews here, specifically Hebrews chapter 12, the series we've been calling Triumphant. And in this series, we are basically learning, we're discovering what it takes to be triumphant in the race that God has set before us. And so far, we've learned that if we are going to be triumphant in this race, then we need, we must remember the witnesses. We need to remove all the hindrances that are tripping us up and and in causing us to stumble, we need to run with endurance. And then last Sunday, we learned that we need to respect God's discipline in our lives. And of course, the purpose of that discipline is to, to train us to run with endurance. And the, the means of that discipline is often hardship, as we saw last Sunday. Writer and runner Art Carey describes his experience of hitting the wall and then going on to finish the Boston Marathon. We pick up his story mid-stride when he writes, in his own words, by now the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half dollar size blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. 
I keep watching my feet move one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm. Keep moving. Must finish, I tell myself. A spectator reports that the race is over. Six miles away, Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. The most intense of my own is about to begin, though. Heartbreak Hill, the last, the longest, and the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill, watching and urging the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, runners trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battled weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinctive profile of the Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace, suppress the pain, finish up strong. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards, cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line. An explosion of euphoria. I am clocked in at two hours, 50 minutes, and 49 seconds. My place, 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they are accurate, then I have just run the best marathon of my life. While times and places are important, and breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just Finishing, doing what you have set out to do. And the same is true in the race set before us. Though we will hit the wall, and though we will feel like giving up, we must embrace the runner's resolve. You ask, what is the runner's resolve? Notice this on the screen. In fact, I invite you, if you want to take notes, you can follow along in the insert there in your bulletin. Here's the runner's resolve. It is to finish faithful the race set before us. Listen, in the Christian life, and we've made this statement before earlier, in the Christian life, finishing faithful is everything. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Do you realize Paul assessed his life, he evaluated his life at the end of it, looking back, and he based it on three things. He fought the good fight, he finished the course, and he kept the faith. You see, for Paul, winning meant fighting, finishing, and keeping. Now, as we have seen already in this series, specifically here, Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews, his, his supreme desire is that these early Christians that he's writing to would finish faithful the race set before them. He was concerned that some of these Christ followers had hit the proverbial wall, and they're about to drop out of the race. And so the author now exhorts them to stay in the race and finish faithful. In a nutshell, this is the theme of the verses here that we're going to look at. And specifically, verses 12 through 17. And this theme, let me tell you, it is very, very relevant to us as we resolve to finish faithful the race that God has set before us. And so the author tells us what to do to finish faithful, and then he goes on and he tells us what to guard against in order to finish faithful. So let's unpack both of these commands. Number one, what to do to finish faithful. The author tells us exactly what to do. He spells it out very clearly here in verses 12, 13, and 14. Let's look at it one more time. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. 
Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The author here is telling us that we need to renew our commitment to finish the race. He asks why. Well, the therefore in verse 12 tells us why. The therefore there points us back to the previous section of verses of what he just wrote about, of this need for us to endure hardship in our lives. And that hardship is what God uses as discipline in our lives to train us to run with endurance. But he knows that enduring hardship, people often what? They quit. They fall back. They get discouraged. He realizes that. And so now, he says, in light of that, therefore, recommit. Resolve in your heart of hearts to finish this race. That's the idea. Don't quit. Keep running to the finish. And here, let me give you three specific things to do in order to finish faithful. Number one, he says, run tough. Run tough. Or if you don't like the word tough, you can say run with determination. Now the imagery that he uses is significant. Arms and legs are symbols of strength and stamina in a race. Listen, when you're running strong, your arms and your legs move vigorously with every stride. But when your body is tired and you feel like you're going to collapse, then there are two signs that tells everybody that. And those signs are drooping arms and wobbly legs. The author employs this image here of these wobbly legs and drooping arms to describe the morale of these early Christ followers. And perhaps it even describes your morale as you run the race set before you. Drooping hands and weak knees depict spiritual exhaustion, spiritual discouragement. In fact, what he's doing, he's he's referencing what the prophet Isaiah wrote. Isaiah exhorted the despairing, stumbling people of his day, and he tells them in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 4, listen to this. He says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. So here, the author is taking what Isaiah said. He's using basically the same words, and he's exhorting us like a coach here in verse 12. When he says, therefore, listen, strengthen the hands which hang down. Strengthen those feeble knees. In other words, run tough. Be strong. Get those hands up. Move those feet. Don't quit this race that God has set you on. Like runners who see the finish line ahead, we are to take heart and we are to keep running to the finish line. And then the author continues. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, make straight paths for your feet. Why? So that what is lame or what is injured may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And again, the author here of Hebrews, he's he's echoing the words that Proverbs 4, 25 and 27 use, where it says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Listen, if you're running a race, that is long, in a race that is strenuous, then the key to finishing is looking straight ahead, not turning to the right or turning to the left. The idea here is to not get off course. Listen, disregard tempting shortcuts. Stay on the course that God has marked out for you so that what is feeling lame or what is feeling injured may not be dislocated but rather be healed. In other words, what he is telling us is spiritual healing when we're running this race is promised to us, is promised to you if you will just stay focused on Jesus Christ and just keep running tough. Don't quit. 
We must also, though, number two, he tells us, not only run tough, that is with this determination to finish, but run tough together. Now listen to me. Running tough was never meant to be a solo venture. The exhortation here to run tough has a corporate concern to it. The author is saying to us, listen, run tough, yes, but make sure you run tough together. In an individualistic culture where it is every man for himself, weakness is not only something to be avoided, when it is encountered, it is often mocked and ridiculed or scorned. In fact, in this Darwinian mindset where we live, where only the strong survive, those struggling with hardships are often left behind to just kind of die and wither away. But folks, you understand that the biblical mindset, you see, that's our culture mindset, but the biblical mindset here is vastly different. Yes, God gives strength to the weary. And Lord knows it is weary running this race. But God also calls us to help the weary who are falling behind in the race. And though you may be running in the race and running strong and running well, there are others who are not running so well. In fact, they have, if we can use the runner's term, they have hit the proverbial wall. Or they are perhaps injured. In either case, they are falling behind. Or even on the verge of just giving up in this race. This means the goal is not just to look out for me while I'm running this race. Oh no, that's the Darwinian mindset. But rather the goal is to look out for everyone who's running the race and to help each other to finish the race. Now, we just had a great example of this in the Rio Olympics. When two runners tripped over each other in the women's 5,000 meter race, and then they helped one another to finish that race. Abby Agostino of the United States was running in a pack of runners with four and a half laps to go when she suddenly tripped and fell while running, causing her to clip New Zealand runner Nikki Hamblin. Both of them hit the ground in severe pain. Abby helped Nikki up despite a badly injured knee, telling her, get up, get up, we have to finish this. Then Abby's knee gave out. Nikki returned the favor and helped Abby get back up. And together they both finished the race. Nikki said after the race, I'm so grateful for Abby doing that for me. That girl is the Olympic spirit right there. It is a moment that I will never ever forget for the rest of my life. That's the Olympic spirit and God has given us his spirit in running tough together. Listen, this urging of running tough together, it, it can't be overemphasized too much. In fact, this community aspect of the Christian life is so important. I need you and you need me. And if you try to run the race all alone, let me tell you, you will indeed find yourself all alone. And perhaps even out of the race all alone. And this is why our church here at Glenwood, why we have a grow group ministry, is why we are encouraging you right now to get connected in a grow group, because even in a church of our size, it is a challenge to look out for everyone. But it is much easier to do that, to run tough together in a small group, and to check up on everybody, to watch on people. How are they running this race? Where are they at? Much easier to accomplish when we are plugged in to small groups. And so let me encourage you, after the service, make a beeline to the back of the auditorium, get plugged in, and if you have questions about which group to plug into, come see me or Pastor Chris, we'll help you. Here's the point. Our mindset as Christ followers, listen, it should be to help everyone to finish the race. We have a corporate responsibility to care for one another and to encourage each other to persevere in the race. The overall exhortation here is clear. Keep running this race and help others to stay in the race as well. You're part of a team. So run tough together, he says.
There's also a third thing he tells us if we want to finish this race. He says not only to run tough, not only run tough together, but he says run tough together in peace. Because our life experience tells us that though we may have peace with God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we do not always have peace with people. Perhaps even people sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. In fact, when the going gets tough, sometimes our relationships can get rough. This seems to be the implication when the author tells us here in verse 14, pursue peace with all people. Now this word pursue, it's a great word. In fact, it's a very strong word that is actually used to describe a hunter chasing down his prey. And so the picture here that he's given us is that we must chase after peace with people just as a hunter chases down his prey. According to verse 11, Peace is the fruit of those who have been trained by God's discipline. And as a result, we are now to make every effort to live at peace with all people and especially with all Christ's followers. In fact, you go to Romans chapter 14, verse 19, and Paul tells us, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. But we all know we're, what it's like when someone hurts you, someone offends you, ticks you off, irritates you, whatever the case may be. Our tendency is one of two things. It's to either avoid that person or to get even with that person. But here the author says, pursue peace with that person. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, don't miss, though, what the author says next here in verse 14. Because it's a statement that no one can escape. And that is, pursue peace, I mean, sorry, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is holiness? Well, holiness, if I can simply define it in a brief time here, Holiness means set apart. That is, you are, you are set apart from sin to God for His pleasure, for His purposes. Holiness also has the idea behind it of, of sanctification. And, and that big word, sanctification, all that means is, is the process by which Christ's followers are made holy. And so take these ideas. Holiness and sanctification is really, it is God's means of preparing you to see Him. Why? Because according to Matthew 5, 8, the, the Beatitudes there, verse 8 says, only the pure in heart will see God. So this is not a new idea that the author of Hebrews is suggesting to us. You know what this means? This means holiness is not something that's optional for our lives. It's essential if we want to see the Lord. Now that's a frightening thought. But the good news is, holiness is a divine gift from the Lord in which we have already received through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one sacrifice, He, that is Jesus Christ, He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In other words, here's the deal, here's the good news. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross has imputed to us His own perfect righteousness, and it has also entered us onto this path of increasing holiness. So holiness... In, in one hand, it is God's work in us. God is doing it. God is sanctifying us. God is making us holy. But it is also a work in which we are to pursue by faith. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And if you think otherwise, you are deceiving yourself. Now, let me just qualify this, because in no way is this verse suggesting that we are saved by 
works. If you're thinking that, let me remind you that no one is saved because of his or her own holiness. We are not saved by our works, rather by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the great message of the whole book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the better sacrifice for our sins, that he achieved the righteousness that God demands, and he now offers it to God on our behalf for all who come to Jesus by faith. And because of, of this reality, this truth, God tells us now, he says, listen, be holy, for I am holy. In other words, the author here of Hebrews says in a different way, he says, because of this reality of what Christ has done for you on the cross, pursue a course of holiness which flows from a heart that's been radically changed by the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon, he, he put it this way, you will never gain holiness by standing still. That alone is worth its weight in gold. Nobody ever grew holy without agonizing to be holy. Sin will grow without sowing, but holiness needs cultivation. Follow it. It will not run after you. You must pursue it with determination as a hunter pursues its prey. So, as the author exhorts us, Yes, we are running this race, but that race is to pursue the holiness of God. Why? Because without it, we will not see God. And so the author of Hebrews, he is so concerned that we finish this race, he tells us what to do to finish faithful. He says, run tough, run tough together, and then run tough together after peace and after holiness. But he's not done. Listen, the author is not done. He continues. Yes, he tells us what to do. And he tells us three things here. But he also tells us, number two, notice it, what to guard against in order to finish faithful. What to guard against. You see, the author of Hebrews here, he wants all who profess to know the Lord, get this, to see the Lord. But he knows the only way we will see the Lord is to finish the faith, the race. And so he gives us this warning in these next three verses. Look at it with me. The warning begins in verse 15, where he says, looking diligently, or some of your versions may say, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, what we see here in these three verses is a warning and it's a very specific warning. It's a warning against what is called apostasy. And so here's the warning. Let me summarize it for you first in your notes here coming up on the screen. In other words, the warning to us here this morning is this. Don't abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ and fail to finish the race set before you. That's the warning. That, in essence, is what apostasy is. Apostasy is when you have made a... You, 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 profess to believe this, but you turn away from it. You, you abandon that and you follow after something else, in other words. In this case, you profess to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you abandon it and you now pursue this. That's apostasy. And he's saying, be on guard for that. In fact, this is the author's main concern. It's his overarching concern that someone might abandon the gospel. Someone might fail to finish the race. In fact, the author has expressed this concern about apostasy a number of times throughout the book of Hebrews. He was concerned that some would actually deny Christ and therefore drop out of the race and not finish it. You go to chapter 2 of Hebrews, and he wrote of believers that were drifting away 
from the faith on the current of worldly unbelief. In chapter 3, he warned of sin's deceitfulness, which hardens the heart so people fall away from the living God. In chapter 6, he wrote of people who had gone far enough into Christianity to have been enlightened by it. In other words, they began to learn of the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and even to have experienced the power of God's Spirit among the people of God and yet only to have a superficial commitment to Christ so that they fell to persevere to the finish line. In chapter 10, he exhorted in verse 36, he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And now, here in chapter 12, the author continues the same warning against apostasy, and he does so now with three specific dangers to guard ourselves against. In each danger, it's introduced by this phrase, lest anyone lest any root, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. In fact, each of these dangers is progressively longer in length. It recalls the earlier warnings in the book of Hebrews to take heed lest something disastrous happen to anyone who claims to know Christ. You're like, what is that disaster that could happen? You would actually deny Christ and drop out of the race. That's an eternal, horrible disaster. And so he gives us these warnings and these three dangers to guard against. What's the first one? Look at it. He says, guard against graceless living. And we might define it this way. It's an unresponsive heart that falls short of God's grace. Now, it is a very sobering thought that someone might outwardly begin the race of grace, and yet fall short of the grace of God in the end. That's a sobering thought. The sad reality is that not everyone will cross the finish line and their destination is eternally horrible. There is always the danger that some people in the church will speak of God's grace, and yet prove in the end that they never truly knew of God's grace. They never experienced it at all. It's not that they received God's grace in the gospel and then lost it. No, no, no. Rather, they fall short of truly believing it, truly receiving it in the first place. The author has already warned us not to be like Israel of the Old Testament when they were traveling through the wilderness earlier in the book. In fact, that generation of Israelites, remember the story? They left Egypt under Moses, but they had hardened their hearts. They refused to enter the promised land. And what happened to them? They perished in the desert, in the wilderness. But because the promise of entering God's rest it still stands. It was first given to the Jews, but now it is extended to all of us who are Gentiles. The author now warns us of the danger of falling short of entering God's final rest in heaven, which comes at the end of the race. The good news is God's grace, listen to me, it's always available to those who are in need of it. Woohoo, right? You go to Hebrews chapter 4, 16, and that's what it tells us. But those, listen to me, those who do not respond to the grace of God, those who do not depend on the grace of God in running this race, listen, you will not enter God's heavenly kingdom according to Hebrews chapter 3. Listen, graceless living is a danger not to be taken lightly. Yes, the Bible teaches that all true believers in Christ, we are secure in God's saving work. Amen? But the Bible also teaches that the reality of our faith is proved by our perseverance to the end. And if you are struggling to persevere here in the race that God has set out for you, listen, this should comfort you, not scare you. You say, why is that? 
Oh, let me remind you what our Lord Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But if you are here this morning, and your Christian life, let's just admit it, let's be honest about it, if it's superficial, then be warned. Be warned and be scared. This danger makes clear that there are many people who make professions of faith in Jesus Christ and yet fall short of God's grace, especially when hardship comes in the race. And so he warns us, guard against this. I don't want this to be you. Guard against graceless living. But there's a second danger, he says. Guard against bitter roots. Guard against bitter roots. And we might define this as an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This second danger is found in the rest of verse 15 when the author says, Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, what the author is doing, he's actually taking us back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, where the Lord himself warned his people, that is the children of Israel, against idolatry. Worshipping another god of some sort. Not worshipping the true god. Now, why is idolatry connected to apostasy? Because here's what happens, folks. When we don't worship the true god, it always leads away from the living God. When we worship false gods, it leads, in other words, to apostasy. Idolatry leads to apostasy. And so after highlighting the idolatry among the Egyptians, Moses warns the children of Israel in this verse. Let me read it to you. He says, beware, there's your warning, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And so this root of bitterness is idolatry. And the danger here that the author of Hebrews is warning us against is that there might arise such a person in our ranks. There might arise a bitter person in the church who has turned away from the true God to follow after some false gods that our world perpetuates to the point of promoting false living and even false teaching. Such a root is not merely bitter in that it tastes bad, oh no, but rather it is deadly poison that it brings spiritual death. And if that person does not repent and does not turn back to God, then such a bitter root causes trouble within the church, and many will become defiled. And this word for defiled is the antithesis of holiness that we are called to live. One author describes the danger this way. Listen to his words. He says, The words of the covenant are on his lips, but not in his heart. His hypocrisy and apostasy are like a dangerous poison. The defilement spreads from the offender to his compatriots. The frightening sin of apostasy is like a contagious disease. It can quickly spread throughout the whole church. Folks, this is why. This is why it is so important that we must guard ourselves against false doctrine and that we must ground people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lest, why? Lest bitter roots grow in our midst and cause others to abandon the gospel and fall short of the grace of God. But there's a third danger he brings us to. It's to guard against godless appetites. And we might define godless appetites in this way. It's an unrepentant heart that satisfies immoral desires. The next verse here warns us that satisfying godless appetites, listen to me, can torpedo you from finishing the race. It will blow you up. It will sabotage your race. 
Look what it says in verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, let me try to briefly explain what, this, what he's talking about here. This word profane simply means godless. And that's why we're saying warn against godless appetites. Because it seems that sexual immorality was a huge problem back in the, he, the uh, he, book of Hebrews day, just as it is a huge problem in our day. And now the author warns against this problem of what some of your Bible versions say fornication or fornicator, which fornication is just another way of saying sexual immorality of any kind. And he's warning us against that, to guard against satisfying that appetite of sexual immorality. You say, why? Why is that so important? Folks, listen to me. Because sexual immorality, outside the boundaries of God's word, which if you're not married, it's no sex at all until you're married. And if you are married, sex within your marriage. But it includes more than just the act of sex out of the boundaries of God. It includes lust, sensualism, watching things. And the reason the author warns against this is because sexual immorality and pornography will destroy your soul and keep you away from true satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will torpedo your race. Richard Phillips writes, these two terms describe a profane attitude about life. Namely, that which is sensual and earthbound, that which pursues carnal cravings of all sorts, sexual and otherwise, rather than spiritual blessing. In a prime example of this, godless attitude and satisfying godless appetites comes from the life of Esau. Some of you are familiar with that name. Some of you may not know who Esau is. Esau was basically a poster child for satisfying godless appetites at the expense of being satisfied by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He forfeited what God promised to him so he could satisfy his physical, sensual, sexual appetite in the moment. Esau was sensually and sexually profane, which is why he took pagan wives and thus grieved his godly parents. But the clearest example of godless appetites of his came when it says he sold his birthright for a pot of lentil stew. This exchange was unthinkable. Now, we don't understand that completely. But back then for Esau, let me tell you, that was unthinkable. Genesis 25 says that Esau despised his birthright. That is, he despised his covenant relationship with God Almighty. And so to despise this blessing of his relationship with God that God made to him, let me tell you, it reflects Esau's contempt for God himself. It reflects his contempt for the very blessings of God on his life, and specifically the blessing of redemption. And it marks him out as a representative of those who constantly turn their backs on God and his grace in the gospel. Esau is a poster child for those people. And then verse 17 tells us why. Esau's godless attitude is to be guarded against. Why it's so important to be on guard about this. Look what it says. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, again, the author is taking us back in history. And let me tell you, these, the author's writing to Hebrews. These Hebrews would have knew their history inside and out. They knew immediately what he was referencing. And he's referencing Esau's predicament when years later, the covenant blessing that he had despised earlier was given to his younger brother Jacob instead of him as the oldest son. Genesis 27 tells us that Esau then regretted giving away something so valuable. 
In fact, he regretted it so much, we are told that he sought it, that is the blessing, he sought it diligently with tears. He had a pity party for himself. Because now he's suffering the consequences of his choices. But Esau, listen, don't let the tears fool you here. There are many people who cry tears. And they're not repentant one bit. Esau wasn't repentant for his sin or his godless attitude. He cried tears of sorrow for his consequences. But he was unable to undo what he had just done. And listen to me, God let him bear the consequences of his godless actions and unrepentant heart. And that's why it says he was rejected. Some of the three scariest words in all of God's word. He was rejected. Listen, folks, that is the consequence of rejecting God's grace in the gospel over and over and over again. There comes a point when God says, I've had enough, and he then lets you bear the consequence of you rejecting him and his gospel, and he says, now I reject you. And we are living in a world, a society, that is full of Esau's people who are focused on gratifying the sensual and the sexual appetites in their lives. And they're doing so at the expense of finding real and true satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want the immediate. Instead of running the race to the end, to receive what is the ultimate that God has for us. Take heed. This warning here, it is serious. Guard against godless appetites, lest you suffer the consequences of an unrepentant heart for all eternity. The message is clear from the author here. He says, don't sell your soul for sex and stew. Because a day is coming when it will be too late to repent. He says, instead, embrace the gospel. Find satisfaction in Jesus Christ and finish the race that God set you on. Why? 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 Because finishing the race is everything. In fact, finishing faithful is so important that the author tells us in verse 15, go back, look at it, see it with me. He says, looking diligently lest anyone fall short of the grace of God looking diligently folks you know what that is this is beautiful that's grace for the race that is God's grace for the race and here's the takeaway Run in community, watching carefully and continually that everyone finishes faithful the race set before us. That phrase, looking diligently, it implies that there's danger that poses an imminent threat. And in this case, it's the danger of apostasy. It's the danger of abandoning the gospel and not finishing the race. And so the author tells us, to look diligently, to watch carefully that everyone finishes the race. In fact, this phrase, looking diligently, do you know what it means? It means to exercise oversight. And it is oftentimes used in, to describe the responsibility and roles of an elder or a shepherd or an overseer. And so the application, here, here it is, get it. The application is we, we are to be a church full of overseers. Because the author is not addressing this just to me and Chris as your pastors. Rather, he is addressing this to the whole community in the church of God. We have a corporate responsibility, in other words, to make sure that nobody drops out of the race. Everyone here together in the church has a responsibility to watch carefully and continually that everyone finishes the race and to help those who have fallen back. As one author put it, 
We are like a band of travelers engaged in a journey, and we must periodically make sure that everyone is still there. Has anyone fallen out? Has anyone been left behind while the others have pressed on? This is why the author tells us to run in community, but also to watch over the community. Here's the point. Grace for the race is running in community, as well as watching carefully and continually that everyone finishes the race. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we are not to experience that grace alone. There's grace for the race. God has given us a community to run in called the local church. God has given us other Christ followers to join us in the race, to run with us, to make sure we cross the finish line together. Because listen to me, the alternative to not finishing the race is eternally horrible. It's judgment and torment in hell. So I plead with you. Oh, do I plead with you teens over here. And you young adults, and you middle-lifers and senior adults, I plead with everyone here, don't abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't isolate from the local church. It's the place where you find grace for the race. Yes, we must run tough, but we must run tough together in community. And as we run tough together, we watch carefully and continually that everyone finishes the race. Is that not beautiful? That's grace for the race. And I don't know about you, I need all the grace I can receive in this race. And I'm sure you do as well. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and again, our hearts are heavy. Because I'm sure there are some whose morale in this race is already depleted and discouraged, and they feel like they just can't go on and they want to quit the race. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to them now to encourage them to keep going, to keep running, and to finish this race. Lord, let them know that we run in community, that there is a church here to encourage them and help them. And Lord, perhaps there are some who are not yet even in the race. I pray that you would open up their heart and mind to see their need for Jesus Christ and what he has done for them with his death on the cross. That forgiveness and salvation are available if they would run to him in faith and embrace him. And so Lord, do a work now that only you can do as Zach sings a chorus here. May we respond as you lead. In your name we pray. Amen.